Hello, loyal listeners. Dave and I are excited to announce that Sci-Fi Fidelity is doing its very first prize giveaway this holiday season to help promote the podcast. And hopefully there will be others in the future. Yeah, that's right, Mike. Three lucky listeners can win their very own copy of The Art and Making of the Expanse. Titan's Books, official companion to the sci-fi series, airing its fourth season on Amazon Prime Video, starting on December 13th. Yeah, it's a beautiful coffee table book filled with compelling concept art and gorgeous full-color photography in which the cast, crew, and creators reveal the ideas, processes, inspirations, and obstacles behind the making of this massively popular series. The book will be available on November 26th on Amazon and elsewhere, so you can be one of the first to get your copy. And there'll be no obstacles here. Entering is simple. Just follow Sci-Fi Fidelity on Twitter or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Sci-Fi Fidelity. Then respond to the giveaway thread, which is pinned to the top in both instances, and tell us who your favorite character is from The Expanse and why. And you can also win a bonus entry by writing a review for Sci-Fi Fidelity on Apple Podcasts. Just tell us what name your review is under when you respond to the Facebook or Twitter thread. Social media entries only need to be on one platform. No need to do both. So the giveaway ends on December 1st and winners will be selected at random. They must respond to prize shipping address requests within 48 hours before new winners are chosen. Sorry, international listeners, and we know we have quite a few, but this giveaway is open to U.S. residents only. So follow us and comment, and remember to subscribe to Sci-Fi Fidelity wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Now for this week's installment. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 79, His Dark Materials. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's Mike and Dave with you here once again. And today we've got a show topic that takes us back to HBO for a weekly series. I kind of like digging into these ones that are going week to week because we only have to dig so far and our spoiler zone is going to be quite tiny for his dark materials because as of the publication of this podcast, I believe the night the podcast goes live will be episode four. So it's just heating up with his dark materials. Yeah. And unlike you, not only did I not read the books, but I didn't know the books existed. So I hear that title and it sounds extremely ominous. And the one thing I would say to anybody that embarks on this series is don't stop after one episode, because for me, I watched the first one and I liked it, but it felt like a kid's series. Okay. Yeah, it definitely gets much darker and much more literary as time goes by, if the books are any indication. Yes, and it doesn't take long. Episode two hits you right across the head, and, and now I'm, I'm in unequivocally. Yeah, and that's saying something, because of course, many people may know that His Dark Materials was based on a trilogy of the same name by a British author, Philip Pullman, and those, that trilogy was comprised of The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and the Amber Spyglass, but I think other people that maybe didn't even know the trilogy existed might know that there was a movie called The Golden Compass back in 2007, which didn't do so well. It featured 
Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig, among others. And I think it just boiled down to they couldn't get the job done in two and a half hours. It it kind of fit the mold of a Harry Potter franchise, but it's got a lot more depth to work with and themes to tackle than I think Harry Potter did. So I think it just wasn't built for the big screen. It needs to be on the small screen. And I think HBO is doing a great job so far. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that television viewers and TV fans like us have realized that in so many ways, television is so much better. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's clear that Dave and I have felt that way for quite some time. But before we dive into this topic, I do want to mention you probably heard the promos the last couple of episodes for our Expanse giveaway of the art and making of the Expanse. And that's going great. This giveaway is is getting a lot of people to coming that are coming to the podcast, coming to our social media accounts. And so far we have about 70, 70 to 75 entries, mostly from Twitter, believe it or not. I know we get a lot of our audience participation from Facebook, but the Twitter crowd has gone wild for this giveaway. And it's a great book. If you didn't catch the video that I posted uh, with some samples of the pages on the inside, they sent me my copy. It looks great. So if you haven't entered, you still have some time. We're going to be giving this away on the December 8th podcast, which also happens to be an interview edition of the podcast with some cast members from the expanse. So that's going to be something to look forward to as we get closer and closer to the December 13th premiere of season four of the expanse. But uh, check that out if you haven't already, but this series is definitely in a completely different vein, much more fantasy oriented. You might say, although with parallel universes coming into play, you could say that it has some sci-fi elements too. If you don't realize the title for the trilogy, his dark materials comes from a line in Milton's Paradise Lost, in which references are made to God's dark materials used to create more worlds. So thus, here we have this alternate world with references to our own and the religious angle, which is definitely part of the series in the form of the magisterium, which is a governing body that's kind of a combination of church and state. Yeah, and for me, it's really just scratched the surface and parallel worlds, I'm all in. Uh, I think most of us have a pretty good grounding from Counterpart, a show that was cut off, I think, a little bit too soon. So it's going to be nice to explore this. And as you said, the religious angle, again, just scratching the surface at this point, two episodes in. Right, and we're in an alternate version of Britain, I believe they call it in this series, as opposed to the United Kingdom. So they definitely have some Catholic church kind of feel to it. But I really like that, that fact that it has uh, an alternate world feel. And you can even see it in the opening credits where they kind of have some layered landscapes or, or cityscapes, if you will. So very cool idea right up front. And in this parallel world of sorts, this distinctive property, I think, of the show is that each human has kind of a familiar, you might say it's almost like their spirit animal. And they describe it in the opening voiceover as the human soul living outside the body in the form of a demon, which is spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. And it's this sacred bond between human and familiar, if you will, and they have conversations. They have distinct personalities from each other. But I really love this concept. It's something that I think all of us immediately start thinking, 
what would be my demon if I had one? Right. And, you know, this is one aspect of the show that really drew my wife in. I'd say she came for the animals, but stayed (laughs) for the storyline. And as you said, I I put some thought into it and I saw what you posted in the Facebook group. I'm still not sure what I would pick for myself. (laughs) It's a tough choice, that's for sure. But the opening voiceover goes on to say, the world has been controlled for centuries by the all-powerful magisterium. And as I mentioned, that kind of parallels the Catholic Church except in the wilderness to the north, where witches whisper of a prophecy, a prophecy of a child with a great destiny. And during the Great Flood, this child was brought to Oxford. So we open up on Oxford campus, Jordan College specifically, but even that opening voice over with references to the north and witches does kind of portend where we're headed. And I believe in the episode that's probably going to air tonight as this podcast is published, we'll probably get to see the witches. But uh, I do want to mention that because we are going to put the first two episodes of this series in our discussion, we'll go ahead and put the third episode in the spoiler zone, even though it will have aired a week ago by the time this podcast comes out, just in case you haven't made it that far and to follow our regular pattern. Uh, But the three episodes really dig into the story quite quickly. And in fact, I think the first two episodes that we're going to discuss here are the core of the movie as well. I mean, it's the part of the plot that you absolutely cannot leave out if you're going to do a a faithful adaptation of the novels. But there's so much more to this world than what's just introduced with the main conflict and the central characters. But the main character is very well embodied uh, by Daphne Keene, who you may know as Laura from the movie Logan, She plays Lyra Balakwa, and she and her fellow orphan are sort of running around the campus of Oxford. They've grown up there. They've kind of been indulged by the professors there, and they are protected by Scholastic Sanctuary. And you get the sense that Lyra is sought after because of this prophecy, perhaps, but also because of whom she might be related to. Yeah, and this is the part of the story early on that I, I, you just have to get past it because, oh, here we go again. Prophecy of a child with a great destiny. <laughs> Chosen one. <laughs> yeah, but but trust us, get past that. It, it just, it, again, I think most of us like dark aspects of a, of a series and what I first thought was going to be a kid's series is certainly anything but. It just has a young protagonist. Exactly. And I can see how you would get that impression from the first episode. Uh, But yeah, the chosen one aspect doesn't get overplayed. You don't have a bunch of people uh, coming at her and saying, you must fulfill your destiny, anything like that. So, and I think that that kind of tempers it a bit, but the central concept of everyone having a demon, the demons of children, interestingly enough, shift form. They haven't quite settled on what they're going to be. For example, Lyra's demon pan is often seen as a white ermine, But he shifts from bird to this mottled wild dog form often. And upon coming of age, I think it's like age 13, the demons settle into that single form. And they kind of speak and act as what I would think of as a conscience, kind of like Jiminy Cricket would be for Pinocchio. And when one dies, the other dies. In fact, we see that in the first couple of episodes that a person can be killed by killing their demon. And they can't even be separated by a whole great amount of distance without causing pain, according to something that Lyra says 
when she notices that Mrs. Coulter is separated from her demon by quite a distance. So just some different facts that I think they dole them out quite expertly so that it doesn't come across as exposition and it's details that you need to know that would have been delivered by narration in the books. Yeah. And I think they do that really well with the scene in which the one young boy bonds with his demon and we see the ceremony and, and you know, the, the importance of it to this community. Yeah. And that's a great scene. And we're going to talk about the Egyptians because of course the Egyptians do seem to have many of them anyway, some sort of bird as their demon and the ceremony you mentioned, Tony Costa, who's turning 13, his demon has settled as a hawk. So I think maybe, maybe because that society subsists mostly on the water, their demons have to be mobile in order to subsist. Cause I, I find myself thinking Lord Asriel, who is introduced as Lyra's uncle at the beginning has a snow leopard as his demon. Very cool. But you start thinking that would cause a lot of problems in certain situations where he'd have to be mobile as opposed to like Lord Boreal, for example, who can carry his snake demon around in his pocket. <laughs> but, you know, I just think it, the demon concept is really cool. It kind of reflects their personalities in some cases, like many of the magisterium, the clergy, you might say, have bugs and reptiles as their demons. So I think that's very reflective of who they are as well. But the opening story does follow Lord Asriel and the study of something called dust, which at this point in the series, we don't know too much about it yet, but keep your eye on that because, you know, I, having read the books, I know that that is a very central concept that's going to come into play later. But Lyra's uncle, Asriel, who brought her to Oxford for Scholastic Sanctuary, is nearly poisoned by the master who's actually the one that took Lyra in, which seems very strange. I guess what we're to conclude is that the master believes that Asriel's ideas are very dangerous He's kind of speaking in ways that would be considered heresy by the magisterium. Yeah. And the relationship between Lyra and her uncle Azriel is one of the most compelling aspects of the first couple episodes. And in fact, as you said, they tried to poison him, but she was the one that tipped him off. Right. And in fact, that allows her to spy on the scholars. He wants her to pay close attention because she saved his life. Now you're going to, hide in the room and any mention of dust uh, definitely keep an eye on the reactions of the different people in the room. So he had been pretending to be on a diplomatic mission to the King of Lapland, but what he was secretly doing was checking on a lost expedition of someone named Grumman. And he went there and supposedly found his dead body, brought his head back as proof that the Grumman expedition had been foiled or perhaps sabotaged, but he did discover in his own studies that the dust that shows up in a special photographic process that he has sort of come up with not only allows him to see kind of a cityscape in the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis shows him kind of a window into another world, another parallel universe, you might say, but also proving a point that is considered sacrilegious that dust is only attracted to adults. It does not settle on children as the magisterium expected. And I think that's something that is really enticing right off the bat. We have to wonder what are the various mysteries that we're going to have to solve as this first season goes forward. Right. Because at this point, I think it really is just simply enough to understand the different photo processes that you mentioned and the heresy of showing, you know, the other scholars that, you know, 
hey, I discovered this parallel world. Right. I think the parallel world is just a sacrilegious as what he's saying about dust being attracted to adults. So he has kind of used Grumman's head as a persuasive element to get them to give him more money to continue the research. But what's kind of interesting is that we discovered later that that head is not even real, that Grumman might actually be still around somewhere uh, that comes up in an investigation by one of the members of the magisterium. But here at Oxford, the master tells the librarian that the alethiometer an object that tells truths to those who can read it. This is an object, a magical object, you might say, that's forbidden by the magisterium. And the master is warning his friend of appalling consequences because the child, presumably Lyra, is going to be drawn in. She has a big role to play and she has to do it without even realizing what she's doing. She has to make a journey. (laughs) This goes back to like the hero's journey that we've been talking about quite a bit in the past few episodes of the podcast. And they have to let her take that journey, including a great betrayal, which she will actually be the betrayer. So this is part of this prophecy, I assume. And the silithiometer is a tool that she must have with her as kind of like her advantage over those who would try to capture or take advantage of her or exploit her. Um, And it turns out the silithiometer is something that Asriel brought with him to Oxford when he dropped Lyra off. For protection. So this is Lyra's alethiometer. Yeah, and we get the great scenes throughout the first two episodes as she tries to figure out how it works. Yeah, they do a great job of not letting her figure it out too soon. But as we'll talk about in the spoiler zone, there's still a little bit that kind of makes her seem like that chosen one that we've been referring to. So with regard to the alethiometer. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So let's talk a little bit about Mrs. Coulter and her secret dealings that she's up to. Because when Asriel leaves to go back north, Lyra decides she's going to go north on her own. She, she was left behind by her uncle very cruelly, so she's going to go on her own. But before she can do that, Mrs. Coulter shows up, played wonderfully by Ruth Wilson. And if you don't know Ruth Wilson... Check out a show called Luther on BBC. If you think Miss Coulter is bad, the character she plays on Luther makes <laughs> Mrs. Coulter look like a Girl Scout. She just is a great villain character. Uh, I think just her demeanor and her her eyebrows maybe <laughs> play into it a bit. Her look is definitely very villainous. And of course, it doesn't hurt that she has a monkey 
for a demon, which just seems very unusual from the start. And that whole aspect of her character is really emphasized in the book. And this monkey is just kind of a creepy little character. But she doesn't say, would you like to pet my monkey? <laughs> you would think she would take advantage of that. Oh, I know. I'd also recommend if you haven't seen her in The Affair, which is a Showtime series, she's just tremendous in that as well. Yeah, she just really knocks it out of the park. And he hasn't shown up yet, but the, the guy who plays Moriarty in Sherlock is apparently in this later on, as is Lin-Manuel Miranda from Hamilton. So I think there's a lot of people waiting for the appearances of those great actors as well. But here, Ruth Wilson, as Mrs. Coulter, hires Lyra on as her personal assistant. And you can't help but think she's got some kind of ulterior motive. We're not sure what she knows about Lyra at this point, but that does become clear in the second episode. But really, it just looks like she's wanting to mold Lyra in her own image as a powerful woman in an all boys club, really at the Arctic Institute, for example, she asks Lyra to look around. How many women do you see here? Right. And the molding that she needs to do is going to require Lyra to change. And you know, right from the start that Lyra is not going to change her tomboy ways and start dressing up in fancy dresses. Right. I mean, she's momentarily mesmerized by the wealth that she is now confronted with and that for all intents and purposes is hers. But, you know, you mentioned Campbell's hero's journey monomyth and and we're really set up at this point for Mrs. Coulter to be Lyra's mentor. But as you said, there are just so many little clues right from the start that something's not quite right here. Right. And in fact, one of the conditions that Lyra puts on Mrs. Coulter to become her assistant is that, well, Roger has to come with me. That's the other orphan at Jordan College. He needs to come too, because he's going to have nobody if I leave. And lo and behold, Roger disappears right before they leave. And Mrs. Coulter promises to help Lyra find him, but you get the sense right away that she might actually be involved somehow in Roger's disappearance because of the fact that she didn't want to have to honor that, that promise to bring him along. But again, we're not quite sure other than the fact that she wants to make her into a strong young woman, what Mrs. Coulter is really up to. And during Lyra's time at Mrs. Coulter's, she starts to overhear things and meetings that are taking place in the apartment and also secret rooms that she's not allowed to go into things like that. And in fact, the monkey demon comes into play it as well, because there are some hidden vents, some hidden passages within the walls that the monkey kind of spies on them, which obviously raises suspicions too. But the big thing that comes out of that is how does Mrs. Coulter stay so far away from her demon without pain? because it would cause physical pain for anyone else. And I'm waiting to see how that unfolds and, and what we learn about that. Cause you almost get the sense that Mrs. Coulter has, has learned a lot about how demons work and what they can be used for in a sense. Cause I don't even see, feel like she likes her demon all that much. Well, I think the question that also has to be addressed, what is Mrs. Coulter? Is she perhaps not human? Something else. Yes. She's definitely got a, a different flavor about her. Even the people that have kind of covered for her within the magisterium are starting to get a sense that she's overstepping her limits because the general oblation board, which she's in charge of, you hear talk from the magisterium that, you know, you need to back off a bit. There are some limits to our indulgence with your project. 
So be careful or we're going to have to disavow you. And Lyra sees this and kind of goads Mrs. Coulter a little bit about, oh, you've lost control. And at this point, Lyra has also kind of read some of the paperwork, breaking into that secret room to see what it's all about. And Coulter loses it at that point. You know, it's just basically she no longer has this veneer of mentor to Lyra. And now she's just completely controlling she mentions that she has no intention of finding Roger and that Lyra needs to move past it and fall in line. And because Lyra has this alethiometer that she knows is important for some reason, she decides she's going to carry it everywhere with her from this point forward and pretends to fall in line just to sort of bide her time until she can escape. And her moment comes at this dinner party where a reporter tells her that Coulter herself is the head of the General Oblation Board G-O-B, which is where the term gobbler comes from. Gobblers are those that are responsible for these missing children, including Roger, but also quite a few Egyptians, which are this gypsy-like culture that appears in the series. So why are these children being taken? Their, their plans indicate that the children, the plans that Lyra noticed in the secret room seem to indicate that the children and their demons are going to be placed in some sort of chamber with a guillotine in between, sort of seeming like they're going to separate them somehow, which is obviously a horrific idea. And Lyra is able to escape because of this journalist kind of getting caught talking to her. But herself, by the end of episode two, is caught by the gobblers, indicated by a mysterious man with a fox demon. And we're going to talk about the gobblers and the Egyptians and this fox man uh, next. But what a creepy journey it was for Lyra to be rescued somewhat from Jordan College and the stagnant life that she might have been living there because Azrael wouldn't take her with him, and now to be basically imprisoned by someone pretending to be her mentor. Yeah, and what's so fascinating about her character is that she is clearly precocious, she is clearly older than her years would indicate, but she's still a kid, she's relatively inexperienced, certainly for Coulter's world, and she's going to make mistakes. She's already made them and she's gotten away with a few. But that's, I think, just what's so endearing about her character. And that's what's also cool about the relationship she has with Pan, her demon, because you would think that the demon would be an extension of the person, but it's not. It's a conscience and sometimes is in opposition to Lyra's proclivities, right? She's very uh, daring, whereas Pan is more cautious. And I think that's something, a balance that is needed <laughs> with this character in particular, but perhaps that extends to other characters as well. But the culture that I really loved reading about in the books, and they're doing a great job of it here in the TV show, although I think in some sense there's no way they can depict it quite as richly as in the, in the novel, but I really like so far what they're doing with it. The Egyptians. The Egyptians are this boat dwelling culture and we are exposed to them in kind of this coming of age ceremony for a boy named Tony Costa. And we see this very festive community gathering and you get the sense that maybe the community is poor. Maybe they're not necessarily part of society. They might be outsiders to a certain extent, but they have very close family bonds and the community itself is extremely tight and interwoven. Right. And it's almost this religious-like quality 
of the community that sets in stark contrast to the magisterium. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, they they definitely are the opposite end of that spectrum. And the Jordan College might be the middle point, because <laughs> since we don't get to see just regular folks walking on the street. So all we know is that children are missing. The gobblers are blamed as some sort of boogeyman, almost like they're some fairy kid snatcher type thing. But the gobblers we learned from Lyra's interaction with Coulter is actually a group of people that are stealing them from the Egyptians in particular, because they figure they won't be missed from this kind of poor culture that maybe the general populace doesn't really pay that much attention to. Yeah. Which seems like an obvious oversight. I mean, these people love their children. Why would you think that they're not going to be missed? Yeah. There's no way they're just going to stand by and take it. And in fact, when Billy Costa, the younger brother of the boy who we see having his coming of age ceremony goes missing during the actual ceremony itself, because I I feel like he maybe felt like he was missing out on things. His older brother is not going to be too big to care about his younger brother. So he wanders off and we see this mysterious figure with his Fox demon. And we realize that they're getting kidnapped and some people show up once it comes to light that yet another Egyptian child is missing. And what seems to be prevalent is that people just think, Oh, he's lost. He wasn't taken. He just lost his way. We need to find him in this area in Oxford. But a man who's had some experience with such things, kind of a leader and uh, in the book, I think they even call him King, uh, a man named John Fa and another uh, sort of sidekick of his named Farter Quorum. They arrive with plans to track the gobblers to London and find proof that these are people taking their children, not some kind of supernatural beast, which obviously is convenient for the magisterium to sort of spread that rumor that they're being taken away by the fairies so that, you know, the superstitious among them will just kind of dismiss it. But they do actually raid the location of a van that they've tracked and find evidence that Billy was there But we do hear, of course, in other parts of the episode that Miss Coulter and her general oblation board have been very careful to move the children on a regular basis so that they can't be discovered. But this proof sort of lights the fire under the Egyptians to perhaps take larger measures. And in episode two and even three, when we get into the spoiler zone, sort of shows that action that they decide to take. Right. And we still don't know what they really want to do with the kids. So that hangs around for a little bit. Yeah. I think that's probably going to go towards the middle of the season. Well, they'll probably reveal that. And then the, the back half of the season will be about stopping them and, and figuring out how to get the kids back and that sort of thing. But I do want to mention one side plot before we get into the spoiler zone, because the magisterium has a couple of people in play. You see uh, one of the higher ups in the magisterium, a cardinal, worried about the heat concerning the general oblation board and the fact that Azrael is investigating dust. So he sends father McPhail to go to Coulter and warn her, as I mentioned earlier, that chill out because we can't back you. If you get caught, the Egyptians are talking. They know that their kids are being taken. We can't cover for you that much longer. And then another character, a really cool character that I'm really watching closely is Lord Boreal, who initially is trying to see what Grumman found out. That's the man that Asriel supposedly brought his head back 
But Boreal, in his investigations, finds out that the Grumman head is actually a fake, that Grumman might still be alive. It was just a tool that Azrael was using to gain more funding. So after dispatching the troublesome journalist at Coulter's party, he kind of crushes her butterfly demon quite easily. That <laughs> kind of makes me wonder of, of the choice, the demon's choice of form. But Boreal is the one that makes use of a hidden veil between worlds to get to guess what our world. And this is where it takes on that counterpart flavor that you were talking about, especially since he kind of takes out a cell phone as soon as he crosses over into our world and texts a confidant to get him to look into Grumman and, and see if he's there in this world, meaning our world. And that's actually how episode two ends. So just a really cool aspect that to realize that they're going to be visiting our world in addition to this alternate version of, of Oxford and, and England. Right. We're not going to go a whole lot into the world building aspect of this series, but it would have been nice to have had this when we did our world building discussion topic. Yeah. And of course, I think any adaptation from novels in particular has a distinct advantage in world building because of the fact that it was already built into the books. I think we even made that qualification in that episode. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we are going to dive into the spoiler zone. It's a very quick spoiler zone, but if you haven't seen episode three, we just want to talk a little bit about uh, what Boreal discovers in our world and what the Egyptians are up to. So let's hit the spoiler zone button. You are now entering the spoiler zone. So I just wanted to mention with regard to episode three, that it does appear that Grumman may or may not be in our world. I actually don't see in IMDb that Grumman actually is linked to a specific cast member or actor, but it doesn't really matter at this point. All we have to know is that Lord Boreal has discovered that Grumman is actually from our world. And so all of his studies in the north of the alternate version of England is actually some studies that he's doing perhaps with knowledge of multiple worlds. So I thought that was a very interesting fact. And I might even find myself wondering, does Azriel know that, that that Grumman is not from his world? I can't believe you went to IMDb. How dare I? <laughs> uh, well, I, well, appropriate. It's in the spoiler zone because that's, yeah, that's one of the things that I've committed to, stopping is to go to imdb and find out oh i guess that character's not going to die they're in well and i came about it from a very different angle because i knew that lynn manuel miranda was going to be in this i knew that andrew what's his face moriarty was going to be in this so i was like oh well is one of them playing grooming that's that's why so I, oh, okay I, I know there's a lot of actors that are in this that i don't know what they're playing yet so you know, I don't think it matters because it's really just to motivate Boreal to try to find more information about, you know, he thinks he's the one exploiting our world for knowledge, not telling his, his confidant anything, even though his confidant does know about demons and, and such stuff like that. But, you know, obviously he was, he's trying to get at what Asriel has discovered. And I just like the spy aspect of it. It does seem like spycraft what he's up to. And that just makes Lord Boreal a great antagonist, even as good as, as Coulter, who is quite good. Yeah. But the majority of episode three does take place with the Egyptians. And I really like what they did with the story that is told to Lyra, because 
Lyra is immediately rescued at the very beginning of episode three. She, she was carted away by the man uh, with the fox demon as soon as she escaped Coulter's, but she's also immediately rescued by none other than Tony Costa, not like an elite group of Egyptians, just a couple of kids who decided they wanted to battle against the gobblers themselves. And lo and behold, they made their own rescue. I don't even think Tony's parents knew that he was out there with his friend doing this secret raid on one of the gobblers vans. But when she's taken back to the Egyptians and taken in by Ma Costa, that's where the really cool story comes out because we find out that Ma Costa was actually her nurse in infancy before Azriel came to take her to Oxford. And Ma Costa reveals that Mrs. Coulter, as it turns out, is Lyra's mother. And Lyra had just found out from Mrs. Coulter that Lord Osriel was not her uncle, but her father. So her world is being completely turned upside down, thinking she's an orphan, that her parents had died in an airship accident. And now she finds out that both of her parents are actually still alive and people that she has already met in her life. Uh, can, can we stop the podcast for a second so I can run down and do my <laughs> I was right dance for my wife? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you haven't, you didn't know this date, but you had guessed it. You yes. Guess that data. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was definitely very cool. And in fact, it explains a little bit about why Coulter is taking such an interest in Lyra. And in fact, even though she has escaped, Coulter uses some very forbidden tech, you might say, in the form of some spy flies who are sent off to hunt Lyra down. And uh, they do actually find her on the Egyptian ships, even though the Magisterium themselves are unsuccessful in finding her in her little secret compartment on the Costa boat. But one of the things that is depicted in episode three that I really enjoyed in the books was the concept of a roping, which is a meeting that the Egyptians have where all their boats are roped together in some sort of delta and all the different tribes and families and, and clans decide on a path for the culture at large, and they've decided that they're going to fight more openly. And they don't take it lightly. They know they're going to lose more lives by trying to rescue their children. But it's a very inspirational scene that Lyra even gets involved in where she's saying, you cannot give up this fight. If we don't do it, it's, they're just going to keep on taking these children. So definitely a strong scene that is not something that they could have done in the 2007 movie. The 2007 movie really covered the same things that the first two episodes did, but didn't have time to do any of this kind of world building and had to skip straight to the end of the conflict with the rescuing of the kids. So definitely looking forward to watching the episode that comes out on the same day as this podcast is released and continuing with the second half of the season, because his dark materials has really impressed me. And I think it's important uh, for someone who has read the books to, you know, not only realize that, you can't really do a entirely faithful adaptation, but when a book reader says it's good, you should take them at their word. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we got to switch gears next week though, Dave, we're going to go over to one of the new streaming services to talk about a show. What's your topic for next week? Well, we're going to hit up Apple plus or is it Apple TV plus? I Apple TV plus. Yes. Okay. Uh, for a show that has had a lot of buzz and that is for all mankind, which is an alternate history about the space race of the 1960s and seventies. 
Yeah, where the Soviets got to the moon first. Oh, you spoiled it already. No, that's the premise. You have to give that up. <laughs> you got to give people that. But yeah, it's it's definitely something that we had to choose between the two sci-fi offerings from Apple TV+. And I'm so glad we ended up with For All Mankind. I wasn't sure what I was going to think of it, but I can't wait to discuss it because it's just got so many great things to parse and decide on and even debate, I think, in some cases. So that's next week. We're going to be doing for all mankind, which which uh, Apple's doing the whole thing where you release three at first and then one at a time a week apart. So we're actually going to be able to to have a little bit of a spoiler zone, but also not have to worry about people having seen the whole season or anything like that. So right. that'll be great. But that's going to be next week on the podcast. But that's it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at sci-fi fidelity and in the meantime we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics via social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com and don't forget a review on apple podcasts does get you a bonus entry in our the expanse art book giveaway so thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week